Hey everyone, this is Chad Harms, the pastor of Creekside Bible Church. Thanks for taking some time to listen to our latest sermon, a sermon about the character and nature of Jesus. It will play in just a minute, but before it does, I want to invite you to do two things. First, if you haven't done so already, please subscribe. We put out a new sermon every week, and we're going to upload some bonus sermons soon. I think I already told you about that. We have the first sermon I ever preached at our church 16 years ago, a sermon I preached from the only pulpit Martin Luther King Jr. preached from in Oregon, and some other sermons I preached at different places as a guest. So please subscribe. The other thing I'd love for you to do is connect with us on social media. We think it is awesome that our sermons get listened to by a lot of people around the world. We think it is awesome that you are one of those people, and we want to connect with you. One of the best places to do that is on Instagram. Our church's username is Creekside Picks, and I'm Chad A. Harms. I mean it when I say we want to connect. It would be great to be able to see your faces, even if it's just on a screen. Again, thanks for taking some time to listen to this sermon. I hope that it will help you learn and live more fully for the glory of God. Good afternoon. Uh, so I'm not Pastor Chad. Uh, I'm his brother-in-law, and usually when I get up here, I'll say something funny about him, or I'll roast him. But since he's not here, let me say something nice. He, uh, one, he trusted me to, to give a sermon, so that says something of his character. Uh, but he uh, has been a phenomenal pastor here at this church. I've had the luxury of knowing him as a friend and as a brother-in-law. He's my brother-in-law, and so I usually make jokes at his expense. But since he's not here, I do want to say that uh, I think we are so lucky to have someone who is so uh, hard after the truth. And so I'm very thankful for him, and uh, you can, you know, tell him I said something nice. Uh, but with that said, I was really, really excited when he asked me to give a sermon, uh, in a series on the nature of Jesus. Uh, it's one of my favorite classes to teach. I teach at a, a private school. I teach Bible. I teach a class called life of Christ. It's my favorite. I said, absolutely. This is gonna be great because if you didn't know, Jesus is my favorite character in the Bible. And so he gave me the passages Tell me if you notice anything. The first is John 1, 6 through 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The next is this, John 3, through 26. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John was also baptizing at Anon near Salem because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said to him, Rabbi, That man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. And later in verse 30, John the Baptist says, he must become greater and I must become less. Now you'll notice that these passages are not about Jesus. They're about John the Baptist. And so... 
At first, I was a little bit bummed, right? I, I was hoping that I would get to discuss the life and ministry of Jesus, maybe the early years, maybe the later years, maybe some, maybe the hypostatic union, to use a big word. You know what that is, is divine and human nature. But I got to talk about John the Baptist. But as I reflected on this, it only makes sense because you cannot understand the purpose and the power of the life and ministry of Jesus, including his death and resurrection, without knowing about the man who was intended to prepare the way. John the Baptist was intended to prepare the way for Jesus. He was Jesus's cousin, if you didn't know. He was six months older. He was born to Elizabeth and Zechariah, and he was heralded by the same angel who heralded Jesus's birth, Gabriel. There were some mess-ups on Zechariah's part. He ended up not being able to speak for the first part uh, of, of the pregnancy for the nine months until John was born. And uh, many people have said, well, John the Baptist was born before Christ, some six months before 0 AD, because 0 AD is Anno Domini, the year of our Lord. We've traditionally put the birth of Jesus at 0 AD. So it only makes sense to say John the Baptist was born before Christ. Here's, here's a strange fact, though. Dionysius Exiguus was the guy who put it at zero. This is going to be on the test, by the way. The guy who put it at zero AD, he was a priest, and he's responsible for the Gregorian and the Julian calendar. He said, yeah, zero AD was the birth of Jesus. But here's the problem. According to the Gospel of Luke, there were three rulers alive during the <laughs> three rulers alive during the birth of Jesus. It was Quirinius, the ruler of Syria. It was Herod the Great, who, you know, murdered the uh, uh, innocents, the kids who were two and younger. And there was Caesar Augustus, the ruler of them all. Well, Herod died in 4 BC. And so we know that anywhere from 6 BC to 4 BC, Jesus was born. So John was bef born before Jesus. And if you think about it, Jesus was born before Christ because he's born in the BC. Uh, the uh, word gospel, though, is important when we look at this because Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are our gospels. And I think many of you know what gospel means. Do any of the kids who are still in here know what gospel means? <laughs> this Yes, the young man in the back. The Means the good news. Yeah, there you go. Tootsie roll. It means, it means the good news. And so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are talking about the good news. And it's about Jesus. It is good news. Right? It's good news for us. But that word, good news... The word we use is gospel, and it comes from the English, old English, Godspell, which means good story. We think about it as a, as a good story. Here's the problem. When you think about good news, it implies the possibility of bad news. How many of you have heard a sermon on the good news? Yeah, yeah, okay. How many of you heard a sermon on the bad news? That's cool. No, only maybe one. Hey, guess what? I want to talk about the bad news. 
I think the bad news is important when we think about the life and ministry of Jesus. But let me give you some examples of how uh, bad news is often implied. I think about uh, the story of a man who was in the hospital. Uh, He'd been in and out of testing for months. They couldn't figure out what was going on. And finally, after months and months of testing, the man is fatigued from having to be there so often and not knowing what his ailment is. The doctor walks in with his clipboard and he says, Bob, I've got good news and I've got bad news. And Bob, who at this time is just so fatigued, he's tired, right? So much testing. He says, look, doc, if you could do me a favor, just start with the good news. The doctor says, okay, Bob, um, I'm happy to inform you that your name is now the name of a very new incurable disease. There's some bad news implied there. He's got an incurable disease. Or the time that Sally called her husband at work and uh, they like to chit chat all the time, but her husband had it up to the ceiling with work and she calls and he says, honey, I, I, I just don't have time to talk. I'm sorry. And she's like, oh, before you go, I've got good news. I've got bad news. He's like, I got so much work. Hey, tell me the bad news later. Give me the good news. She says, fine. The good news is the airbags in our brand new car work perfectly. <laughs> There's some bad news there. And so when we think about the good news, there's got to be some bad news there. Why is the news good? Why is it good? There's got to be something bad there. And I'm going to tell you that the life and ministry of John the Baptist, who was sent to prepare the way for Jesus, his life and ministry was about reminding us of the bad news. And we know bad news, don't we? In fact, if you think about the life of John the Baptist, here was a guy who spent his entire life in the desert wearing a poor man's clothing. He was wearing camel furs. He ate bugs and wild honey. And he baptized in the Jordan River and he reminded people of their sin, even the ruling class. He went to Herod Agrippa, who was the father of Herod the Great, who killed those babies. And he condemned him for the sin of taking his brother's wife, Herodias. And it was Herodias who was mad, the wife, because their marriage was being condemned. So one day when Herodias' daughter was dancing for King Herod, King Herod was so enamored by her dancing, he went to her and said, look, great dancing. Can you imagine that you're just such a good dancer that someone's like, I'll give you whatever you want. My wife is not that. I love her, but you know, if she danced, I wouldn't be like, Hey, take half my kingdom. (laughs) But, but here we have Herod of Agrippa who sees Herodias's uh, daughters dancing and says, I'll give you anything up to half my kingdom, whatever you want. You're dancing so good. And so she goes to her mom and says, mom, He said, he'll give me like half the kingdom. She's like, nah, nah. You know who I hate? I hate John the Baptist. Ask for his head on a platter. John the Baptist is imprisoned. 
and he's beheaded. It's not a good story. Doesn't seem like good news, right? I think about just recently, my family got some bad news that someone related to us had passed away under tragic circumstances. I think about the time that I was going to the vet hoping for some good news for my dog, Rocky, who was my beloved pet. And uh, the doctor came back and said, there's nothing we can do. It's renal failure. His kidneys, they don't work. And so I watched, hoping for a miracle that God would heal this, but he continued to get sicker and sicker until eventually he was put down. That was very bad news. I think about the time I broke down in my classroom with my kids because I was driving to, to school, which is down in Salem. And right when I got onto the freeway, the traffic was stopped. And I pull up my GPS and it says, don't worry, you'll be there in two and a half hours. It's like, all right, well, I'm due there in 20 minutes. Two and a half hours is too long. I call them. I say, look, I'm going to be late. They're like, all right, how late? I'm like, really late. And I'm fuming. I'm just getting so angry. I'm thinking, man, who in the world is causing this issue or this problem? Somebody out there doesn't know how to drive because they cause a huge pileup. And I am so angry. And right before I get to school over the radio, it says that there was a fatality. And so they had to close the freeway. And I felt so convicted that I was so angry about my own inconvenience when someone had literally died. I got to school and I said, all I wanted to do was get on on my knees with my students and pray, not for them, but for me. Because there was something wrong in my heart where I elevated my convenience above the life of other people, that that person had a face. There's something broken in this world. And in order to illustrate this, I I want to talk to you about narrative. If you don't know this, the Bible is a nonfiction narrative of God's working in the world. And something that people get wrong, in fact, Tim Keller, he's an apologist out there, a Christian apologist. He said, so many people get this wrong in the Bible simply because they don't know how to read narrative. For instance, if you look at the Old Testament and you come to the conclusion that multiple wives is okay because so many patriarchs had it, then you're not reading those stories. Everyone who had multiple wives in the Old Testament was having an absolutely miserable time. Every time they went against that ideal of Genesis that says the two will become one flesh, things went wrong. Think about some of the greatest conflicts that still exist today with Israel and Muslim nations. You might not know this, but Abraham was promised by God that he would have descendants as numerable as the stars. And Abraham's like, well, this is great. I'm going to have kids. 
Problem is, my wife is well along in years. I don't know if God can pull this one off. If I'm supposed to have children and I heard it from God himself, he would have to do a miracle. Because there's no way my wife, Sarah, is going to have children. And so as time went on, Sarah said, yeah, you know, maybe you're right. I don't know how God could possibly fulfill this. And so Sarah said, look, if you want to have children, take Hagar, my maidservant, as your wife. And so Abraham took a second wife. What happened? He had a child named Ishmael. And Ishmael is exactly the lineage of Islam. So Muslims will look back and say, we come from Ishmael. And Jews will look back and say, we come from Jacob and Isaac, the son of Abraham through Sarah. God fulfilled his promise. And Sarah did miraculously, despite her years, have a child. But Abraham had already sinned. And the consequences of that sin still exist today with these warring nations. Something is broken that would make Abraham think that, man, I just, I got to take this into my own hands. I can't trust God. I, I'm going to go and do the wrong thing. It's happened forever, even before that with Noah. The world was so broken. They were so against God. They were so thoroughly sinful and infused with sinful hearts that God said, I'm going to save a precious few and put them on an ark. And you know what the first thing Noah did when he got off that ark after being saved? He went, it says, he planted a vineyard, pressed the grapes, made wine, and got drunk and passed out in his tent. Right back to the issue. Went right back into sin. See, the Bible, in its narrative, doesn't always prescribe, it describes. And that's really important. Because in Israel, in the Old Testament, it says, hey, they fought this nation. That doesn't mean it's a prescription for you to go out and be like, hey, I want to fight somebody because it happened in the Old Testament. Or, hey, Abraham had a second wife. That means I need to have a second wife. It happened in the Old Testament. It's describing what happened. But if you, if you read the consequences, you're aware that this description is actually an indictment of that. The consequences show you that it was the wrong thing. Is there, is there any greater story for that than the story of Samson? You guys know the story of Samson? Mighty guy, really strong, right? He killed a thousand Philistines with a donkey's jawbone. Really cool story. He trusted. He trusted a woman named Delilah with the source of his strength. How did it end for him? His eyes were gouged out. He was imprisoned. And finally, he was paraded out before the Philistines to be mocked and jeered. If you read that story, you know that, hey, he probably shouldn't have told her that. He probably shouldn't have trusted Delilah, who tempted him into revealing that truth. And the reality is, is that it happens over and over and over again in the Bible. People keep making the same tragic mistakes of not trusting God, trusting their own intuitions, 
going after their own wickedness and things end poorly for them. And this is the cycle. It is the cycle. We see it in the book of Judges. What happens is this. The Jews, the chosen people of God, are making great decisions. Great decisions. Following after God and he blesses them. Then they say, look, things are good. We don't need this God character. Let's go our own sinful ways. Let's go into this spiritual apathy and malaise. And we're going to forget about the ways of God. And then God judges them, sends another nation to take them captive. And they're in bondage now to another nation. And they cry out and they say, God, please forgive us. Deliver us. We made a tragic mistake. And so God then Sends them a judge. The first judge in the book of Judges is Othniel. It goes from Othniel to Ehud, Gideon, Jephthah. It goes all the way to Samson, the judge. But it's always the same cycle. They trust God. Then they fall into sin. They They get taken captive. They cry out to God and God sends them a judge. See, this same cycle has continued all throughout history. It continued all the way up into 163 BC when they were under Greek rule. Before that, it was the Babylonians. It was, it was the Persian, Persians, but they would go in and out of being taken captive. In 163, it was the Greeks, and they made them sacrifice to Zeus on the, on the altar in the temple. At this point, it was the second temple. And so the Maccabees went and took over. That didn't last very long. In 63, it was Pompey, the Roman general, who put them under Roman rule. And so now this new authority, Rome, was over them. But the Jews knew. We've been here before. All we need to do is wait for the cycle to switch. We pray and we cry out to God and he'll send someone to deliver us. Maybe, maybe he'll even send us the Messiah, the promised king who will ultimately deliver us. And so this is exactly where they're at. They're under Rome. And John and Jesus are existing under this time. And the Jews are thinking, if we just turn back to God, he will deliver us from the power of Rome. It was always the same. The bad news to them was their circumstances. Everything that was bad was external to them. It was their captivity. It was their enslavement. It was whatever ruling class was in charge. That was the problem. The idols and their foreign gods and and these bad people doing those profane things, none worse than Rome, who's all sort of perverse and terrible. They had pederasty running rampant. So they had these things called catamites where there was just a young boy that was being taken as a sexual slave by older men. It was commonplace and normal. It was disgusting and it was pervasive throughout Rome. And so they look at this stuff and they say, look, all of this around us is terrible and bad and God needs to save us from our external circumstances. The bad news is what is around us. That's the context. And it's important because it's not the bad news. The bad news that John the Baptist was preparing a way for 
was making clear to us in order to be fully receptive of Jesus was the bad news of our own wickedness. The bad news was not that you are captive to foreign rule. The bad news is that your heart is captive to the worst enemy of all. That's the bad news. And you're going to see it. You're going to see it in the life and ministry of Jesus. He did not come to conquer these puppet rulers, which they are. He came to conquer the ruler who rules them all. And that is the ruler who has the hearts of people captive. Often we look at the circumstances outside of us and we say, this is bad news. It's all very bad. But how often do we reflect on the fact that the worst news of all is often the state of our own heart? What is broken in us that makes me want sometimes the things that I want or think in the way that I think? Something has power in this world, not just to control our bodies, but something is after our very souls. And I want to look at this. Uh, one, of the, one example that I have is when I uh, was in school, this was three years ago, and they allowed me to give some input on rule changes. And private schools are often slow to change rules. Uh, but one of the rules was nobody can have gum, right? Because that means somebody 10 years ago did something stupid, and they were like, all right, well, the consequence is nobody can have gum now, and it ruins it for everybody, and that sticks forever. I said, hey, let's revisit this, right? Kids, sometimes their breath smells, and they want to mask it with gum, and that's good, I think, right? So let's let them have gum. I think they can be responsible. That was tragic that I was the one voicing that, because no sooner had they said, yeah, let's do it. You know what? You can have these kids uh, chewing gum in your classroom if you want. And so I was like, yeah, all right. Kids, you can chew gum if you want to. Two weeks later, our custodian is is exhausted and mad because she's like, why is there gum every under desks and stuck in the carpets? I walked and the entryway was covered with just gum everywhere. It's under the railings. Why are kids doing this? And so during our staff meeting, we're like, okay, kids are dumb, right? They're dumb. They're irresponsible. They don't care about other people. They just do whatever they want. We try to give them gum. Not you guys. Sorry. You're great. Right, kids, these kids are, you know, they don't know how to be responsible. So the, the problem is they're putting gum, chewed gum everywhere. The solution is not to allow them to chew gum. And it was sort of my idea. So I said, well, hold, hold on a second. I don't think the problem is that they're putting gum everywhere. I think the problem is a heart that makes them think it's okay to put gum everywhere. You see the difference? What inside of a person makes them think this is okay? And so the next chapel, 
when they're a captive audience. I bring the custodian, lovely, sweet lady at the time. And I say, this is the face of the person who's working so hard to clean up the mess that you are making. Why? And what makes you think it's okay to be so unkind to this person? The mistakes that you're making affect this person. See, I wanted to address the issues of the heart. I'm happy to inform you that it worked. John the Baptist is not looking at the things that people are dealing with externally. He's saying, come and repent for your sins. John the Baptist was doing a baptism of repentance. He's saying the thing that is wicked here is not the Roman rule. He was most critical, in fact, of the Pharisees who were just doing religion. But they weren't changing their hearts. And so he's saying the the problem that we're having right now is that we are wicked. It is not the nation here that needs to change. It is the heart inside of you that needs to change. You need to repent. It says this in Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 9. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That's Satan. The spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. In order that in the coming ages, he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Says this in Matthew 3, 5 through 6. People went out to him from Jerusalem to John the Baptist and all of Judea and the whole region of the Jordan, confessing their sins. And they were baptized in the Jordan River. John the Baptist was trying to prepare hearts for the good news. See, but you, you cannot fully receive and empower the good news unless you understand the bad news, that the problem, the problem is not what is outside of us. It is who is vying for the very heart within us. Let me tell you something that I think is really radical. The first thing that Jesus did after going to John the Baptist and being baptized in order to fulfill righteousness, it says in Matthew, is he goes out into the wilderness and he fasts 40 days. This is insignificant 
if you don't understand exactly what the wilderness is. The wilderness, the understanding of the wilderness is it's where all the bad things went. If you were a demoniac, if you had uh, demons in you, you would be sent out into the wilderness. The idea was that evil and demons and things like that went out into the wilderness. Why were they out there? In many respects, because of what's called a scapegoat. During the day of atonement, there were two goats. One was sacrificed. You know what happened to the other one? All of the sins were put on this goat called the scapegoat. And it wasn't sacrificed. It was sent out into the wilderness. All of the sins of the people was sent into the wilderness. Where did Jesus go at the beginning of his ministry? He went to where all the sin was. He wasn't there to conquer Rome. He was there to conquer the rule of the person who desires for us to destroy ourselves through sin. And lo and behold, who does he meet there in the wilderness? Satan himself. After fasting for 40 days, he's tempted three times by Satan. And on the third one, which is what I wanted. First, it was, hey, turn this stone into bread, which Jesus was very hungry. He had been fasting for 40 days, so it was no doubt a very real temptation. Then he was tempted to prove God's power by throwing himself off a high place and the angels would come and save him. But this next, next temptation, I think, is, is very important for us to understand. He says this, again, the devil took Jesus to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this. I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Now, one of the crucial things to understand here, by the way, that was in Matthew uh, 4, 8 through 10, is that Jesus didn't question Satan's ability to give him those kingdoms. See, all the kingdoms of the world were but puppet rulers for him. Satan had all the power. And Jesus went and confronted him there because Jesus came to save those very things. The alternative to get the kingdoms of the world was to bow down to Satan. But there was another way, a harder way, the way of God was to die for them and to beat death through his resurrection. That was the harder way. It's why at the, God, at the uh, Caesarea Philippi, when Jesus was preparing to enter into Jerusalem, where he was going to die, he told his disciples, hey, I'm going to die. And Peter says, basically, there's, there's got to be another way. Do you know what Satan, I'm sorry, do you know what Jesus says to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. It was the same temptation that Satan gave him there. There was another way, and it was the wrong way. 
Jesus came to break the cycle of us focusing on what was external to us. John the Baptist, his very purpose was to point out that the problem was our hearts. We need to repent. We are dead in sin. We need to repent and prepare our hearts because Jesus is coming not to conquer the things outside of us, but to conquer the power that is vying for our hearts within us. I hope that makes sense because too often we get caught back in this cycle. I know I do. I think, God, why is this happening in this way? Why do we have the wrong people in charge? Why are you allowing this to happen? Why are all these outward circumstances that are hard, why are they happening, God? Why is there so much tragedy? The Bible as a narrative never told you Never told you that if you believe in Jesus, all of these outward circumstances are going to be all good and dandy. John the Baptist, who came to prepare our hearts, was beheaded and he died for it. Simon Peter, who didn't even realize, who kept saying, are you going to finally deliver Israel? Are you going to finally deliver Israel? Didn't didn't realize until Acts chapter 8 that Jesus actually came to save something more than Israel. He came to save our hearts. That man right there, he ended up dying, crucified upside down because he refused to die like Jesus. Thomas, stoned to death. Every single one of our disciples lived a hard life of persecution, many of whom, or all of whom but John, died as a result of their martyrdom. Their outward circumstances were tragic and hard. And if you don't understand the deeper story, you're going to say that that's bad news. But it's not. These were people whose hearts were set free. These are people who were redeemed by Jesus and the captivity of their heart was over. Their outward circumstances were tragic and hard. But they had life and they had it abundantly. And my prayer for you is that you'll remember the bad news of John the Baptist. The bad news that your heart is what needs to change. You can pray about your outward circumstances, and you ought to. But if you're forgetting that the the worst thing is the sin nature of our hearts, then you're missing the point. You're missing the bad news. And if you're missing the bad news, you're going to miss the good news. Jesus did not come to change your outward circumstances. He came to change your heart. And it's my hope that as Christians, that that's what we're going to be seeking the most, for Jesus to change our hearts. So I hope that will be your prayer. Uh, Thank you for letting me uh, probably go over time. And uh, let me pray that over you. Lord, I just thank you so much that you are a God of power. And you are a God who is in control, God, and you came to save our hearts. God, I pray that we would remember 
exactly what John the Baptist came to tell us. That it is our hearts, God, that Satan wants to take captive. And I pray that we would trust you, that we would lean into you, that we would give our everything to you, God, that we would live the righteous way despite our outward circumstances, not because of them. Lord, we thank you that you are a God who saves our souls. And I pray, God, that that would be our focus as Christians, that our heart is right with you. And we love you and thank you for your gracious sacrifice and in your precious name, amen.